This morning in Romans 8, I want to read aloud verses 12 through 15. So if you found your way there, please stand with me for the reading of the word of our Lord. The Apostle Paul writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 and verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Again, we are in Romans chapter 8 this morning as we continue to walk through the letter to the Romans that the Apostle Paul write. We've settled down into the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. My intention uh, last Sunday night was to make it through verse 27 uh, this particular week. But once I got into it and, and got to studying, I realized that uh, these first few passages, 12 through 15, were so extremely important. I decided to pump the brakes, slow down and spend more time here. Now, again, the Holy Spirit's doing everything that we find in Romans chapter 8. In 14, He's leading us. In 16, He's giving witness or testimony to our own hearts. In 23, because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, He's given us a taste of glory to come. And then you make down to verse 26, or make your way down to verse 26. He is helping us in our weakness as the Spirit is continually interceding for us in His prayer ministry on our behalf. Now, as I said, 12 through 15 are extremely important passages. And I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon on these particular passages. I'm frustrated to know that under the ministries or the pulpit that I was raised under, I don't ever recall hearing a sermon on 12 through 15. And again, these are so critical for you to know. The only sermon that I ever remember was 10 years ago, riding on my lawnmower. And it had such an impact on my life. I went back this week. Looked it up online to a particular guy I listened to occasionally. There was that sermon again. I listened to it again and it still speaks because he was so faithful in dealing with these particular passages exegetically. He just walked through them. So these are absolutely profound. And at the same time, they're a little bit difficult as well because if you'll notice in verse 12, he starts with a so then. In other words, based on some things that I just said, so then, here is your response. And then he goes on in verse 13 with a four or a sense. He goes on in 14, four or sense. And then he goes on in 15, four or sense. In other words, since this, then this, since this, then certainly this, and since this, certainly this. So you can see if you're an English major that's really good at diagramming sentences, you'll be fine. If you're like me, it's going to take you a while to work through these passages because Paul is stacking up all these principles to drop a bomb of truth on our life. And as I said, again, profoundly important. Now, when you start in verse 12, you realize that Paul grabs you by the throat because he uses a word we don't like. He says, so then we are obligated. If you have the ESV, it says that we are debtors. And no one likes the idea of being indebted to anyone. No one wants to be obligated. And when you realize that the obligation is a moral obligation, well, that makes it all the worse. Not only do I not want to be obligated, I don't want to be morally obligated in any respect. We're Americans. We don't like obligations. We like freedoms. We like to talk about freedoms. We'll fight for our freedoms. We like liberties. Talk about liberties. Talk about Christian liberties. Talk about how... Christ has rescued us from the law, and so I don't have to keep the law anymore. We are free in Christ. Talk about those things. And Paul's like, no. No, we're going to talk about obligations. 
And so we need to be careful that we hear what Paul is teaching us in these verses. So why in the world does Paul feel like that we're under obligation? Again, notice verse 12 with the so then. And I could back up all the way through back up to chapter 8, verse 1. Many commentators do, but I, I believe 10 and 11 will do the job. Because I believe that's primarily what Paul wants to say before he says, so then you're obligated. And in verse 10, if you'll notice with me, this is what Paul writes. He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. In other words, you are literally spiritually, you've literally moved from death to life. In Christ, since Christ is in you, he has condemned sin in the flesh. You're no longer under condemnation. You've been plucked up out of the fires of hell as a glowing ember. And he's patted you off and he's put you out and he's blown the smoke away. Your sinful flesh has been crucified with Christ. And now you've been raised up with Christ. And so from death to life, Paul says, so then. You're obligated. And he says what's more, he builds on the idea of that in verse 11. If you'll notice what he says in verse 11, he says, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your what? Your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. In other words, not only have you escaped death and judgment because Christ is in you, now we have a hope for future glory. It's not just death to life, it's death to resurrected life. It's death to a fullness of life to where we have a new body, a glorified body, a body like the Lord Jesus has when He was raised up from the dead. When our Savior returns, we will be this mortal body that we've been put down in the grave. will be raised up in newness of life in a body that is full of glory. Amen. A body without restraints. A body that has never been stained with sin, nor seen the likes of sin. Paul goes into great detail in 1 Corinthians 15 about this body. And someone's arguing with him about the body. You get the idea that he's arguing because he addresses them as you fool. And here's their logic. We all know what happens to the physical body when you put it in the ground. It turns into dust. And so the thought is, if it turns into dust, Paul, what are you going to do with dust? There's nothing you can do with dust and dirt, and you can't turn it into a glorified body. And so Paul takes up the argument. He says, someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? In verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15, it says, It's sown a perishable body, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown natural, it's raised spiritual. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And what a body that will be. It will gloriously, wonderfully, perfectly reflect the image of its Creator. It will be a body of glory. And Paul says, so then. Huh. So then you're obligated. He's rescued you from death and brought you into life. And what's more, you have this promise of one day experiencing life. And I think we'll all be shocked when we get there how much like it is now. Minus depravity and sin and death. We will have bodies but they will be perfect bodies. And we will have relationships. And we will be together. And we will be in the presence of a holy, wonderful God. And so Paul says in verse 12, So then, you're obligated. So here's the question, what are we obligated to do? And he goes on and explains in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. So the, the way he communicates the obligation, he brings it to the negative sense first. You're obligated to not. You're obligated to not live according to the flesh. And by now, hopefully... We've walked through eight chapters of this. Hopefully we understand what it means to live according to the flesh. 
It is someone, it is anyone, it is everyone who is apart from Christ. They are in the flesh. And I think Paul gives us the simplest definition of what it means to walk according to the flesh in verse 7 of chapter 8. He gives us three phrases, really. The first phrase that he brings us to is, those who are in the flesh are hostile toward God. You see, the flesh wants to be its own God. And it is absolutely appalled at the idea that there is a God that would tell them how to live. And the flesh winces at that. It grows angry with that and it lashes out at that. How dare anyone tell me how to live? This is my body. This is my life. And I will set the rules and I will place the demands and I will live according to my own wisdom. Don't tell me there is a God who teaches me how to live. That's the flesh. Paul says, no, you're obligated not to walk like that. Don't you dare walk in hostility to God. And then he gives us a second phrase in verse 7. The flesh will not subject itself to God. The flesh openly rebels against the Word of God. As I said, it determines what's acceptable, what's not, and it lives according to its own wisdom. And here's what's tricky about the flesh. It will take the benefits from God, but it despises obedience to God. And herein, I believe, many professing so-called Christians live. They want the benefit, but they couldn't give a rip about the authority. They remain their own authority. They remain their own God because they do what they want to do when they want to do it. But I'll take whatever benefit this God of yours has to offer. That's the flesh because the flesh is always about itself. It is in the center of everything and it will not subject itself to anything else. Paul says, hey, you're obligated not to live like that. You're obligated not to live according to the flesh. And then thirdly, it's not even able to do so in verse 7. It couldn't if it wanted to because, again, the flesh is its own God. And this is who we all were and this is how we all lived according to ourselves before we came to faith in Christ. Because the way to come to Christ is to die to self. You can't come to Jesus unless you've crucified yourself. Both of you can't be God. Both of you can't be Savior and Lord. And so in coming to Christ, we bow the knee physically, but you bow the knee spiritually as you come before Him in repentance and faith. And so Paul says, no, we're, we're not obligated to live according to the flesh any longer. In fact, the flesh is the very reason we were up under the wrath of God. The flesh is why you were condemned. You're obligated not to live like that any longer. The flesh was the reason that Christ had to come and die. Why would you live in that manner anymore knowing that your Savior died for the sake of your flesh or your sin? So we can no longer live according to the flesh. And if we do, Paul's very clear, the fruit of that way of life will always be death. There is no other destination for those who live according to the flesh. And Paul's not talking about physical death. We all die physically. Paul's like, no, you're, you're obligated not to live like that because if you live like that, you will die spiritually. You will die eternally because you will spend eternity apart from God in hell. Now, Paul's not the only one to talk like this. This is not just Paul's theology. This is the Bible's theology. I had you mark 1 John. So if you did that, go with me to 1 John chapter 3. And I want to show you John's way of putting this very same truth. 1 John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, notice with me verse 4. Everyone, John says, who practices, and there's your key word, practices. This is their way of life. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He, Christ, appeared 
in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him, that's Paul's way of talking about our union with Christ, no one who abides in Him, present tense, actively sins. He's not talking about sin singular, he's talking about the way in which you walk. No one who abides in Christ sins. No one who sins has seen Christ or knows Christ. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. Here you go. I say some things equally important, but this is on the top of the heap. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as Christ is. And the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Same thing Paul's communicating in Romans 8. You're obligated not to live present tense as a way of life, as a pattern of living according to the flesh. If you live like that, Paul says, you're going to die. John says, you're of the devil. So this is a very serious issue that we roll into as you make your way back to Romans 8. It's a very serious issue in Romans 8, 12, and 13, and 14. And you don't need to dismiss this theologically. You need to walk through these passages and understand what he's communicating to us. So obligation number one, he said, I've got to go with a negative. Don't do this. This cannot define you. This cannot motivate you. You don't live by appetites and desires. You're not your own God. Don't live according to the flesh. Verse 13, but. Now he turns to the positive. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You know, you're not going to die. You're going to live. So in the positive sense, he brings us around to this obligation that I think Paul wanted to start with, but he thought, I better address the negative first, and then I'll go to the positive. So you're obligated to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. And what does it look like to live according to the Spirit? Oh, you're going to put to death the deeds of the body. And those who are living in this manner, those live. Living according to the Spirit is described in verse 13 as putting to death. It's present active. This is how you live. Putting to death the deeds of the body. It's very aggressive language. If you got the King James Version, you got my favorite way of, you got my favorite translation of this particular word in the Greek. King James uses the word mortify. If by the Spirit you are mortifying the deeds of the flesh. This is a very aggressive word. The word is, if you're taking notes, thanatao. Thanatao, T-H-A-N-A-ta-o, T-O long O, thanatao. Let me give you a passage where it's used. Matthew 27, 1. Listen to this. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to thanatao him, to crucify him, to murder him. That's this word. In other words, Paul's saying you're obligated to live according to the Spirit. And let me tell you what the Spirit is doing. He is crucifying the deeds of the flesh. He is murdering. He is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And those who are living like that, those are the ones who will live. In other words, what Paul is describing here in, in Romans 8 and verse 13 is an absolute all-out war against sin in your flesh. It's the kind of attitude that says no peace, N-O. No peace, make war. It's the kind of attitude that says kill or be killed. In fact, my favorite comment, I guess on any, any passage, is on this particular passage by John Owen in The Mortification of Sin. Old book, Puritan book. I don't know if there's a better book. It's awesome. Let me read you John Owen's singular comment about this particular verse. He says, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. 
Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I can't summarize that verse any better than that. You had to either be killing sin or it will be killing you. This is a no prisoners, kill them all kind of attitude in regard to your personal sin. Now, we constantly needed to be reminded of this because this is your greatest war and you're so distracted from this. The devil anxiously and feverishly works to lead you off of this battlefield onto another battlefield because there's so many good battlefields out there to fight on. There's a battle going on against liberalism. Boy, that's a good battle. I like that battle. Fight in that battle if you can, but that's not your greatest battle. That's not battlefield number one. There's a battle going on in abortion against abortion. I hope you're a part of that battle. I don't know of anything. Y'all know this is the top of the pile for me. I don't know anything more godless than putting to death innocent life. Helpless innocent life. That is a tremendous battle, but you need to understand that is not your greatest battle. Hope you're involved in it, but that's not your number one concern. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, gender identity, great battle. Great battle. It's being fought in the church now. You need to fight in that one. But that's not the most serious battle that you fight in. Our greatest war, let me hurt your feelings. Our greatest war is not for the sake of freedom as Americans. That's a great battle. It's a good battle. It's not the greatest. Because there is an eternal battle that goes on in your soul every day. And the vast majority of the time, we're so distracted that we're not even engaging in the war. We've got our hands in our pockets, walking across the battlefield, singing songs of grace. And I don't know of anybody that likes grace more than me. I think when I am convinced, when I walk into heaven, the angels will go, Are you kidding me? Him? God, you're vastly more gracious than I ever imagined. To which I will say, you better believe he is. But you got to understand, you need to get your hands out of your pocket. There's a battle going on and it's for your soul. And you'd either be killing sin or it will be killing you. Based on Romans 8, 12 and 13. We're not serious enough about this issue I'm convinced that the overwhelming majority of Christians don't even know about the issue nor where to begin. And I'll give you two reasons. Number one, the pulpit has not addressed the issue. I told you, I don't know if y'all have heard a sermon on these passages before. It's taken me 10 years to get to the letter of Romans. You remember a passage on this? I couldn't unless I went online and found one. So number one problem, the pulpit hasn't been making disciples... No, it's not, it's not invested in training you. The pulpit today is invested in entertaining you because they want you to come back next week. If you just come this week, I want to send you out here as thoroughly equipped and trained as I can in the time that I have. And if I never see you again, at least I put a bullet in your gun. The second reason you're not equipped or trained for this battle is, I just don't think you're very concerned about it. I don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, Christ died for my sins. I'm good, right? Well, if that were the case, why would Paul, right in the midst of his letter, right in the midst of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, say, so then you're obligated not to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. You see, there's purpose in him putting what he says where he says it. Jesus was seriously concerned about this issue. Listen to Jesus' words. It is much more emphatic and gripping than what Paul has just said. Matthew 18, 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, implied into sin, cut it off, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled and maimed than to have two hands and two feet and be cast into eternal fire. That's the way Jesus thought about this. You got her a hand or a foot that's just causing you problems? Cut it off. 
You'd rather walk into glory without hands and feet than to walk into hell having all four appendages hanging on the end of your body. He goes on further in verse 9. He says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. That's Jesus' thoughts on your battle with your personal sin. Don't sweep this under the rug theologically. Let it punch you in the gut. It's meant to do that. It's meant for you to go, I'm terrified because I know that I've got unrepentant sin in my life that I'm just hiding. And now I'm scared to death. That's what these passages are supposed to do. So you'll run to Christ. And not stuff your hand in your pocket and go, no, it is well, it is well. It is well within my soul. No. Let me tell you how this works out for me. What this always brings me to in my physical experience. Several years ago, y'all know, I had the little battle with cancer. I remember going and getting the biopsies. And I remember going back in the doctor's office to get the report. And for the very first time, the receptionist, you know how they do, they never look up from their computer, looked at me and didn't ask me my birth date. And said, Mr. Carroll, he'll be with you in just a minute. I sat down and I said to myself, well, that wasn't good. They called my name back quickly. I didn't sit there long. The nurse wouldn't look at my face. Her head was down, eyes on the report. She walked me to my room, set me down on the table, said, he'll be in here in just a minute. I said to myself, that wasn't good. He walked in the room and his very first words were, well, I didn't get the report that I wanted. My first response, oh no, I've got cancer. Now, it took me a few minutes to theologically settle down and go, it is well, it is well. But what happened today knocks the wind out of your cells. And somebody, some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. When you read passages where Paul says, so then you're obligated not to live according to the flesh. For if you live like that, you're going to die. You've got to let that do the work that it's supposed to do in your heart. Don't sweep that away. When Jesus says, if your hand or your eyes are causing you to sin, cut them out and throw them away. Why in the world would you want your eyes in hell? Why wouldn't you want to go dancing into glory without eyes? How in the world can you compare? See, those are meant to grab you around the throat so you'll go, oh my word, I've got cancer. Or, oh my word, I've got sin in my life and I've just been going right along with my hands in my pocket singing songs of praise. What am I doing? I could die. That's what this is supposed to do. When you find sin in your life, it ought to buckle your knees. You ought to feel the weight of a doctor walking in with his head down going, man, I'm sorry. This did not turn out the way I was hoping it would. And you go, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, you've got unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life. If you're not careful, you're going to die. And you go, what are you talking about, man? I walked that aisle. I prayed that prayer when I was six years old. Don't tell me I'm going to die. No, you're ignoring some things. You're ignoring, conveniently ignoring some passages such as Romans 8, 12, and 13. You see, brother, you're obligated to not live according to the flesh. For if you live like that, you're going to die. That's the what... That's what the report says from your test. And so we allow these passages to deal with us. But here's the good news. Those who war against the flesh live. And Paul's not talking about physical life. Paul is talking about spiritual life. Paul is talking about being with God in heaven forever. And those who war against the flesh in this life will remain with God forever in the next life. 
But you really got to be careful here because this is not an if-then statement. And I need you to hear this. This does not say, if you do this, then you will live. It's not what it is. I told you when I started Romans 8, there is no exhortation in here. There is no command. There is no imperative. This is not an imperative. So he's not saying, if you do this, then this will happen to you. This is what he's saying. You want to know if you truly have life in Christ? If you do, the Spirit of God which dwells in you, He is leading you to put the sin in your life to death. It's not a work. He's not communicating that. Don't mishear me. That's not in the grammar. Again, it's not an imperative. I gave you an example Wednesday night. If you touch that stove, you will tell your kids eventually, if you touch that stove, you're going to burn your finger. Now, there's not an imperative in there. You didn't say, do not touch that stove. You didn't say that. You simply said, you know, if you touch that, it's going to burn you. Paul is putting it this way. If, by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you're going to live. In other words, again, this is how we know, one of the ways that we know that you have life eternal. Because the Spirit of God is leading you in repentance and faith and obedience and not in unrestrained and unrepentant sin. That's not how He leads. Last thing I come to in this passage is the one requirement. And this is very important. In fact, I'm growing in importance and I'm getting down to the last important thing I really want to slow down. But notice verse 13, the second part. But... If by the Spirit you are present tense, actively, way of life, putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. One modifier. If by the Spirit. Now listen, if you get this wrong, you die. And I'm not talking physical. There is one thing and one thing only that's required in this battle of yours against sin. And it's not absolute victory. The one requirement is that you are led by the Holy Spirit. Even grammar-wise, when you look at it in the Greek, it means that the Spirit is the means, the cause, the manner, or the agent by which this event occurs. If it is said, or if this passage said this, if you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live, it would be anti-gospel. It would be anathema. If Paul says, so then you're obligated to put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live, and he left out the Spirit of God, it's anti-gospel. He's broken every principle he's ever laid out, and it's pure anathema. No, you have to meet the one requirement. All flesh killing must be done by the Spirit or you'll actually be walking according to the flesh. Because you'll be justifying and sanctifying yourself. It has, absolutely has to be by the Spirit. What's more is, one of the commentators adds this, it is not to be taken to imply that the Holy Spirit is to be a tool or some sword in the hands of Christians wielded and managed by them. The Holy Spirit's not your tool. He's not your tool bag. He's not your sword so you can pick up that sword and go marching out on the battlefield. Look at verse 14. For, here's this one of those senses, for if you're led by the Spirit, you see, you are sons of God. He's not a tool. He's actually leading in the battle. He's actually the one defeating the sin. You're not doing it. Again, you leave Him behind. Now, there is a particular way in which these things must be done. Which begs the question, how in the world do you wage war by the Spirit? I mean, i got to know. If I've got to be actively in my life putting to death the deeds of the body in order that I might live, and it has to be done by the Spirit, then you've got to define for me what that means. Well, look at Paul's list. There is no list. If he gives you a list, he's violated the gospel. Because what will you do with a list? You will meet the requirements and demands of the list. And you'll ignore 
the one modifier of this whole warfare, and that is by the Spirit. If we were to be given a list, we would turn the Holy Spirit into a tool. We would mortify our own flesh and actually walk according to the flesh, denying the very principle that Paul is trying to teach us. Therefore, and listen to me well, there is no program. There is no 12-step anything. There is no methodology. There is no plan. There is no celebrate, recovery, or anything else. Let me say that carefully again. All of your flesh killing must be done by the Spirit. And the moment that you leave behind the Spirit on the battlefield and take up some methodology or some plan or some program or some group that you meet together in is the moment that you've abandoned what God has said you must do to put to death the deeds of your flesh. And you're just simply using Scripture and using the Spirit as some tool to accomplish your own purposes and build a better you. No, you've got to very carefully understand what's going on. And so, trembling. You've got to understand, I've been trembling since I realized that I've got to help you understand what it means to, by the Spirit, put the deeds in the body. I've been trembling ever since I've realized that because I've got to get this right. If you go about it wrong, you die. If you're going about it right and He's putting to death the deeds of the body, you live. So how in the world, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit in warfare against your own sin is your greatest battle? Well, let's talk about what it means to be led. And if I talk about what it means to be led, I believe you'll understand. Verse 14, right? 4. To be led by the Spirit or for all who are being led by the Spirit of God. These are sons of God. So what does it mean to be led? And to be led requires one thing, a particular posture. To be led by anyone requires a particular posture. And I'll define this posture with three words. And they're pretty simple. And I'm not giving you a list. Submission, dependence, obedience. To be led by anything or anyone requires a posture. And I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about inwardly. It requires a posture that can be defined by submission, dependence, and obedience. Now, here's how I want to break this down as I finish out walking through this. So when I walk away and, and tomorrow, I say, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit in the direction of the uh, destruction of the flesh? You'll go, oh, submission, dependence, obedience. Submission and dependence and obedience upon whom? I want to break it down with the Trinity. Now, if you're going to feverishly try to take notes, don't worry about that. I'll give you my notes. And I'll challenge you to search through them and challenge me on some of my points. Because this is, this is I can't think of something I've been more afraid to preach than these particular words. Because we've got to get this right. And I'm a man. And we all got to understand. So we have this posture toward the triune Godhead. And let me start with Christ. We are dependent, fully submissive to Christ for our work or for our justification. We're dependent upon the work of Christ 100% for justification. Now I want to give you a sense, and I want to give you a so then. Since this is true... Turn back to Romans 6, and let me read 6, 7, and 8. Remember, think posture. Let me, let me, in your mind, put you down on your knees. And the first triune member of the Godhead I brought you before is the Lord Jesus Christ. So since, Romans 6 is true, verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died by coming to Christ has been set freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Christ. Since that is true, we've died with Him and we live with Him in the gospel. Since that's true, so, then, so now by faith, 
Verses 11 and 12 and 13. Notice verse 11. Even so, by faith, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those from alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, in this posture that we've assumed before the Lord Jesus Christ, I realize that my death is in His death and my life is in His life. And so now by faith, He says, consider yourselves dead to that way of living. Consider yourselves as dead. And stop offering the members, literally, my mouth, my eyes, my hands, my feet. Stop offering that to sin. You can't live like that. Start offering your mouth to God as an instrument of righteousness. Stop offering your eyes to sin. Stop looking at things that glorify the flesh. And start setting your eyes on things that glorify God. Since, so now. Now we're still down before Christ, and I want to give you number two in regard to Christ. Since Romans 8, 3 is true. Flip over to chapter 8, verse 3. Since this is true... For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. So since this is true and the law couldn't produce righteousness, no Christ produced righteousness, since that's true, so now, verse 4, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but we walk according to the Spirit. Since the gospel's true, by faith now, I can walk according to the Spirit and begin to fulfill the law. In other words, I've got an entirely different relationship with the law. I don't look at the law as a list in which I build merit with God. I can't do that. Christ did that on my behalf. So when I look at the law, I don't see a list of rules and things that I must do in order to justify myself before God. No, now when I look at a law, it's a description of what I am becoming in Christ. Who I am in Christ, I am becoming in practice. By faith. Not by any kind of work. Now remember, I've got you postured before Christ. Justification accomplished. So now, consider... Offer and consider and, and look at the law as realizing, praise God, look at this law. It's holy. It's perfect. And by the work of the Spirit, I'm becoming more and more and more and more like the perfect law of God. By faith. First person of the Trinity, let me go with the Spirit. I've got two, then I'll finish with God and I have one. Posture yourself before the Spirit. We have to be submissive and dependent and obedient upon the Spirit because we're dependent upon the Spirit in our sanctification. We move from justification to sanctification. Look at Romans 8 verse 7. Since this is true. Romans 8 7. Since because the mind of the flesh is hostile toward God, it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And since those who are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, verse 6, last part, since those things are true, so now the mindset on the Spirit is what? Life and peace. I'm totally submitted to the Spirit of God. I'm dependent upon the Spirit of God because life in the Spirit is nothing more than life and peace. The hostility between me and God's over. The war is done between me and God. The only thing that exists between me and God now is peace. I have peace with God. And where the flesh would not submit itself to God? No, no, no. I've submitted myself to the Spirit. And if you submitted yourself to the Spirit, you submitted yourself to the Word of God. This is the simple truth. I didn't ask you this. You should know this. How does the Spirit lead? He always leads you according to the Word of God. There's no other plan. God created the heavens and the earth according to His Word. 
Adam pressed all of humanity over the depraved cliff because he violated the Word. When Jesus came, he was the living Word. And when the Holy Spirit moves in, he begins to manifest the Word of God in your life. But since you're in the Spirit and you're dependent upon the Spirit, you're just submitted to the Word. You hear the Word and it's against how you think or you live, your knees buckle. And you go, oh dear God, how could I ever think differently than what you say? And when God tells you what to think in His Word, you go, I'm done. I was wrong. I'm wrong. He's right. So you're dependent upon the Spirit. And we're able to do so because of the work of the Spirit within us. And in doing this, and in our dependence, in our submission to the Spirit, we are able to put to death the deeds of the body. Now listen to this. Here's how this works. You see, in the death of Christ was the death of your flesh. And through the resurrection of Christ was the life of Christ in you. So now, listen, you actively put to death what has already died in Christ. You now crucify what Christ crucified. You now kill what Christ killed at Calvary. You are becoming practically what God has made you principally in Christ. Your victory is not simply possible. Your victory is absolute in these things. To steal a bad analogy or an illustration that I'll totally regret later, you're beating a dead horse in the Spirit. Jesus has already cut its head off. Your enemy's dead on the battlefield. Now kill it. Do what he's already done. And be what he's already made you to be. And all of that comes because we're totally dependent and submitted to the Spirit of God within us. One more about the Spirit. Since 8.14 is true, notice 8.14. Since this is true... All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. See, it's even put in the indicative. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons. Since that is true, now, so now, any effort on my part to do anything, justify, sanctify, to put to death the deeds of the body through some earthly effort is actually hostility toward God. The end game is not the goal. Putting to death the deeds of the spirit by the putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the spirit is the goal. Me and Nathan were talking about Galatians last night. This is how Paul puts this in Galatians three. He says, "Are you so foolish? Having come to Christ or having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Are you now going to go to some Christianized twelve-step program and perfect the flesh?" You're violating the gospel. Andrew Murray puts it this way. This is the work of the Spirit by Him alone. It is to be wrought. And by no other power is it to be brought about. Mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention until the end of a self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion. You get that? Killing your own sin by some self-strength carried on by some self-invention until the end of self-righteousness is the very soul and substance of all false religion. No, it's by the Spirit and it's by the Spirit alone. We come to faith in Christ and Christ alone and we mortify the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit and the Spirit alone. To God be the glory and God alone. Lastly, and I have one sense and one now. We are submissive, dependent, and obedient on the work of God for my glorification. Since Romans 8.15 is true, look at 8.15. Since you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but now you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, since that is true, and let me tell you how true that is before I go to my own so now. This idea of Father immediately points to relationship. He's your Father. 
Since He's adopted you as His Son, you have a new Father. It's personal. It's not corporate. This is one of the reasons Jesus got crucified, because He would refer to God as my Father. And it made the religious leaders furious. He was the Father of the nation. Don't say He's your personal Father, because if He's your personal Father, you're equal with God. No, through the Gospel, He's my Father. But the word that's in the emphatic is cry out. And it's exactly the same word when Peter stepped out on the boat and began to walk on the water. And he began to sink. And what did he do? He cried out. Since this is true, since you have a father now into which you can cry, Oh dear God, help me! I found myself in sin. Since you have that, so now... You have the promise of Romans 8.30. Look at this. These whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. You're like, wait a minute. Glorified is in a past tense. That hasn't happened yet. Oh yes, it has in the mind of God. It's absolutely happened. In other words, you have a Father in heaven to which you cry out. And we hear the promise ringing in our ears. Oh no, listen. If you've been predestined, you've been called. If you've been called, you've been justified. And if you've been justified, you've been glorified. You finished the race. You're perfect. You did battle with the sin in your life. And the Spirit gained victory in your life. And now you stand before me absolutely glorified. So you're obligated, as I close, you're obligated. You're obligated not to live according to the flesh. If you do that, you die. Please don't be surprised. Please don't show up with some card that you got in VBS with your name written on the back and go, look, I I got this. I'm sorry, there's been a mistake. Don't do that. It's clear. You're obligated. But in the positive sense, you're obligated that by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body. And in that, you found life. Because that's how the Spirit of God leads us in this life. Let's pray.